Today on CityCast DC, I'm David Plotz, the CEO of CityCast and a native Washingtonian, and I am taking the mic today to talk about Matt Iglesias' wild, weird plan to make DC richer, safer, and more crowded. It is so crazy, it just might work. Thursday, September 1st, 2022, and this is CityCast DC. Matt Iglesias, you are the writer of the Slow Boring Substack and the author of One Billion Americans, but you are also a Washington, D.C. patriot and gadfly and idea factory. You have a plan for solving the D.C. housing crisis. You start, however, with the idea that our housing crisis is actually very much a parking crisis. How is parking the root of all trouble in Washington? You know, I mean, I see a big thing in my neighborhood is that people have their residential parking permits and it's very valuable. You for cheap get to park on the street and people guard very jealously the boundaries between the Ward 2 stickers and the Ward 1 stickers. And anytime somebody wants to build something new, new apartment buildings along 14th Street or along U Street, you know, people worry that it's going to increase the scarcity of those street parking spaces. And I'm like, I'm a huge Yimby person, a like pro housing person, you know, like we need to build, we need to build. And I try to reassure people that all kinds of concerns they have are wrong. And the problem with the parking thing is like, I can't tell them that they're wrong, right? If more people live in the neighborhood, it is true that it's going to be harder to find a parking space. And that, I think, for those of us who want to see more housing, is the real issue that like we need to solve. We don't need to just like convince people. We need to address their concern. Okay, let's back up to D.C. housing prices, which are insane. So one-bedroom apartments here rent for $1,000 more than the national average. And an obvious way to bring that down is build more housing, more supply to balance out demand. Why is that not happening? Parking is a piece of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not happening because of the planning regime. The zoning often just doesn't allow for any more building. Or even when you can build inside the zoning envelope, you know, you have to go through a historic district process. You have to go to your ANC meetings. There's often a lot of hide the ball type stuff. I live near this project that the uh, Masonic Temple on 16th Street wanted to build on a vacant lot basically behind their property. And it's going forward, but it took them years because people tried to do a historic historic designation of the vacant lot. They tried to get a down zoning of the vacant lot. I mean, they, they tried lots of different things because at the end of the day, if neighbors don't want something new built near them, they have a lot of tools with which to pursue that goal. Okay. You have a bold plan, all caps, for how to fix this. What is it? Give us the basic outline of the Iglesias plan. I mean, the basic idea, I mean, it's just crazy, but I mean, it's to say, look, you should be able to build anything on any residential parcel, which is, it's out there, right? But it's to say, like, let's go really, really big and say that more housing is good, more building is good, and that we are not going to do sort of parcel by parcel, neighborhood by neighborhood review, which is to say that you as a homeowner or I as a homeowner will gain the right to sell my property to developers to build things. And we will be giving up the right to sort of hassle our neighbors about what it is they can do. It would unleash an incredible amount of new construction. There would be a lot of benefits to that, but it would make it harder to park. And, and you have a plan for the parking too. So bring that. 
Right. Well, so that that's where I wanted to try to get a little bit more creative. I'm friends with a lot of urbanists, a lot of mass transit advocates, and they've been trying for 20 years to get the city to make the residential parking permits more expensive, right? To say, look, we shouldn't be giving away this valuable street space for so little money. I actually think we need to really give it away. We got to say to everybody who's got one now, you just have one for life in perpetuity, and you're allowed to sell it if you want to, but we're not going to issue any more, right? We're going to throw fairness out the window and just give a kind of a parking windfall to the people who live in the city already, because I think that flips the script on parking and it changes it from, well, I don't want anyone else to live here because they're going to take away my parking space to, I make more money if more people live here because I can sell a parking space to them. Sort of like taxi medallions used to work in New York. That did not work out well. That did not work out well. Well, I mean, eventually Uber came in and, and busted them up, but you know, it's like, let us longstanding residents get a parking windfall rather than incentivizing us to keep new people out of the city. So it's it's blatantly unfair to people who would move in because they'd have to pay for a permit. They'd have to they'd have to buy a permit off someone that used to be there for free or for thirty five bucks. But in exchange, you're letting more people actually come, right? I mean, I think you have a lot of times in politics, these insider-outsider dynamics where because the idea is, well, we need to treat all newcomers fairly, we then say, well, we don't want any newcomers, right? But the advantages to people who don't live here of being able to move here at an affordable price are really, really large, right? This is a high-wage market. It's a great city to live in. I mean, we have our problems. Frankly, one of our biggest problems is just the affordability. So if you let more people come, that's good for them. If you make them buy out an incumbent parker, you know, that's good for the people who've been living here. And so everybody wins. What do you think would be the market price of a residential parking permit in Ward 2, Ward 3? I mean, I have no idea. Um, you, you know, the price of constructing a parking space in an underground kind of garage, I think, is about 5000 to $10,000, depending on the specifics of the format. So, you know, that would probably cap the price of an RPP, right? Because at a certain point, you could just kind of build more garages. Uh, but you're talking, you know, potentially a, a very good chunk of money. Isn't what you were proposing, the build anything anywhere, property rights and residential parking permits, just a recipe for gentrification on steroids? And if so, isn't that going to be just as alienating to longtime residents of poorer neighborhoods and especially black Washingtonians of his, you know, very in a very established neighborhoods who are seeing their communities changing very, very fast already? Well, so I, this has become a really kind of hot research topic. A lot of grad students have been doing their job market papers on this question of does new development raise or lower kind of neighborhood level rents. I think researchers mostly find that new construction actually reduces the pace of displacement because it creates someplace else for people to go. But the other thing I do want to say in this plan is that the highest economic value is allowing development in the richest neighborhoods. So if we were to say to like the bottom third by income of, of ANCs or census tracts or whatever, look, you're allowed to opt out of this upzoning. The cost of that is really, really small. And if it makes people sort of feel better, if it gives them more confidence in the reform, like I think we should do that. My prediction is neighborhoods that opted out would ultimately find themselves wanting to opt in because like the only thing worse than people investing in your neighborhood is nobody investing in your neighborhood. Ultimately, I think there's a lot of benefits to sort of new amenities and new residents. But to be clear about it, right, I mean, the 
the loss that we are taking right now is that the richest neighborhoods don't allow new construction. And so we're pushing all the development onto this kind of gentrification frontier, and it's become very sort of fraught. And what we should be doing is really throwing up mid-rise apartment buildings around where I live in Logan Circle and points kind of west of here where the prices are through the roof. That is a really interesting point. I had never thought about that, that the loss is that it, you can't build it in Ward 3, so it gets built in a neighborhood which where you are intrinsically gentrifying. You use the f- three-letter phrase uh, word ANC, which is a which is a beloved CityCast DC term. So <laughs> you have also a, a great plan for ANCs to just get them, turn them into gigantic slush funds, be wasting money on all kinds of neighborhood benefits. Is that basically your idea? Well, yeah. I mean, I remember I was in um, over in, in LaDroit Park, and I was talking to a, another dad out there on the playground, and it turned out he was ANC commissioner. So I was spying on him. And he was talking about how he kind of like shook down developers for this like public art thing here and this improvement to the playground. And he was really proud of that, right? And it got me thinking, though, it's a very laborious process to kind of have ANC members like raise fake objections to new building and then have the developer come back and be like, oh, you know, what if I built you a nice playground over here? And and, and like nobody knows what's going on. And if you actually just created a rule that like some of the incremental property tax revenue flows directly to the ANC that they can then spend on whatever it is they want to do. That's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a more efficient way of doing it. It also means that, you know, neighborhoods can get the kind of local amenities that they really want. It's very possible that the ANC members would just waste it on stuff that's dumb, but you could run against them theoretically. You might get more people actually interested in those jobs if they were a little more fun, if you got to kind of hand out cash and throw cool parties, things like that. Because right now, a lot of the times, I feel like they ask for neighborhood amenities that sound high-minded, like this weird sculpture on the corner of 14th and R, where it's like, does anybody actually like that? Or was it just that it, it kind of like sounded good? It's something to ask for. But if you have money in the bank, you could throw like a Halloween party. I mean, I, you could do whatever you want. Right. And so you wouldn't also spend every meeting trying to find reasons to object to this building. Well, right, right. And that's the other thing is you wouldn't need to pretend that it's like, oh, I'm so mad that there's going to be a shadow over here. You could just say, look, like, you're building here, we're entitled to like some cut of the money. How would fantasy DC be safer and have better services? So, I mean, I think from a public safety standpoint, one thing we know, I mean, an old Jane Jacobs idea is like eyes on the street, right? Like if there's more people around, that's good. But the other thing is that if you think about police coverage, which, you know, has obviously become a fraught topic, but like broadly speaking, when there's more police officers around, that leads to less crime. But you have to fund the police department out of your number of actual residents, right? So when you have more people per square foot, like in New York, you wind up with many, many more police officers officers per square foot, which means that a much higher number of sort of streets are within sight at any given time. And I think it's actually not a coincidence that, you know, New York City is far and away the safest large urban area in the United States. And I don't really think that's because there's some like wizardry that that the local officials there know that nobody else does. It's that they're much more intensively sort of covered by law enforcement, not on a per person basis, but on a per square foot basis. Whereas Western cities, right, uh, Tucson, Los Angeles, Phoenix, tend to be way more dangerous than, than Eastern ones. And I think that's because 
like there's so few people around, right? I mean, police are just kind of in their cars. They're driving around. They can't see anything. They can't see what's going on. You know, DC has its own unique problems, its own unique history, its its own kind of struggles. But we have that Northeastern sort of built form. People can walk people around on their bicycles. But if you have more people, if you have more density, you can get more coverage and you can get things to people faster. What are the barriers to your Fantasia becoming real? Is is Muriel Bowser calling you up? Do you think DC could ever actually do any of this? <laughs> I mean, I think this is a little bit out there. Uh, but, you know, I have spoken to people in the mayor's office, and I do know that they are interested in the ideas. I thought this was just punditry. No, I mean, look, uh, you know, Mayor Bowser has set a number of housing production goals over the course of her time in office. And DC has done a good job of adding housing compared to a lot of other cities. But we've mostly done it through these kind of quasi-greenfield developments, right? Around the ballpark, in Noma, around Navy Yard, where there was sort of, I don't want to say there was nothing there, but there was not a lot there. And so we've built a lot of stuff and it's been good for the city. But we're running out of that kind of land, you know, and so I'm not saying we're going to see the mayor endorse this tomorrow. But like she and her team are aware that the city has benefited from a relatively robust pace of housing construction, and that the strategy they've been using to get that is running out of space. I mean, literally running out of space, and they're going to have to come up with something new, uh, probably something less radical. But you know, I I think it's, it's an important part of the conversation. You've talked to people about this associated with the mayor. Yeah. Oh, I do things. I do things. You know, I'm not just I'm not just sitting here. That's doing so great. I'm so well, it's so exciting. <laughs> do you think that there's anything about D.C. in particular that would make your ideas work or is, would this work with any relatively dense city? I mean, I think these are fairly general kind of points about urban development. I do think that D.C. uniquely because the sort of main business here is the federal government and kind of government-related, like, nonprofits and people yakking at each other. We have way less commercial real estate sort of property tax revenue than a typical American central city. So a long time ago, in the 80s and 90s, and the old kind of fiscal control board day, D.C. really had to sort of shift its municipal business model to one that was based on having people want to live here. And that's something that D.C. political culture and D.C. political economy is really built on. What we've been doing is exploiting these greenfields. I mean, we've really created whole new neighborhoods out of thin air over the past 20 years. And that's that's good. I mean, it's just it's a strategy that's running out of logistical opportunities. But it does mean that the the D.C. kind of political class, the elected officials, the civil servants, they are aware that housing production is really important to the city. They've been trying to foster it. I'm talking about sort of taking that to a much, much higher level. But for a lot of cities, it's been the opposite, right? That local elected officials have spent the past 20 years trying to get more office buildings built. Because to them, an office building is a source of tax revenue that doesn't require any new spots in schools, doesn't bring any new voters who might not like you. And that's sort of been their whole mentality. And and those cities are really going to have to, uh, they're going to face a sort of an existential crisis in the wake of COVID and remote work and Zoom and things like that. Because it's, I mean, I think people will come back to the office to some extent, but but it's very unlikely that we're going to see like booming demand to build brand new office buildings in a lot of cities. So if you're looking for growth, it's going to have to be residential growth. 
Matt, people consistently say that they don't want dense, walkable neighborhoods of the sort that you think we ought to be creating more of in D.C. So what makes you think that they actually do and that therefore creating more of them in D.C. is is a good thing to do? Yeah, I mean, this is a thing where I, I do think sort of dense, walkable urbanism is a minority taste in the United States. You see that in polls. But right now, we're not creating like any of it right? It's as if we passed a law that said, like, you can't get a station wagon, right? And like, we know most car buyers like the sort of SUV crossover type things. But if you want different kinds of cars, like you can buy them, they are for sale, they're made in the quantity that they should be. If you look at sort of walkable, nice neighborhoods in DC, in San Francisco, in New York, in Boston, you see that they're incredibly expensive. Right, which is a clear signal that they are being undersupplied, even if the typical person is perfectly happy living in the suburbs. Subscribe to Matt Iglesias' Slow Boring on Substack. Matt, thank you for coming on CityCast DC. Come back with your next quixotic plan. Thank you. Before we let you go, some quick news. Two teenagers were shot outside the IDEA public charter school yesterday morning. The school quickly went into lockdown, and police have arrested a 15-year-old student from the school. Around the same time on Wednesday morning, a teen was shot in the chest in Southeast. D.C. gun violence is at its highest rate in 20 years. Meanwhile, Swan Street, both the street and the fame punk song, are getting a name change. Sort of. Recently, the DuPont Circle ANC passed a resolution to honor William Dorsey Swan, a black queer activist from the late 1800s who called himself the Queen of Drag. The street was formerly named after a 19th century governor of Maryland who was also a slave owner. Same name, very different meaning. Finally, we've got an episode coming up on fast, casual food in the district. If you have thoughts and feelings, and I know you do, I do, I am all kava all the time, please send us an email at dc at citycast.fm or call us. You can reach us at 202-642-2654. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. I've been telling everyone I know to subscribe to this podcast. You should do the same. And not just for the podcast. Check out our newsletter as well. You can find it on our website at dc.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Goodbye. All right. Grip it and rip it.